the role of the designer has shifted from stylist to coordinator. And I think the same general point could be made about some of the most progressive companies in the world that consider themselves to be design-led. It's not that they take styling more important than they used to. It's that the role of the designer has fundamentally changed. I'll bet you don't know where the term interaction design comes from, but Barry Cates does. Cates's book, Make It New, captures the lost history of digital design that should be required reading for all in the software design industry. I first got to know Barry Cates as a professor at Stanford during my undergraduate education in product design, where he taught one of my favorite classes, the history and philosophy of design. Now, typically I was drawn toward the more project-based classes where I got to spend late nights in the machine shop, getting covered in metal chips and coolant, making things, but Barry's humor and knowledge of the depths of design history brought the academic side of design to life for me. In our conversation with Barry, we learned when exactly design became an essential part of technology businesses and the origin story behind some of the challenges designers commonly have with engineering teams. This is an eye-opening episode. Let's dive in. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. And now, back to the show. Barry Cates, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you very much, Eli. It's so great having you here. Before we started recording, I was, to your chagrin, I think, mentioning that I've been a real fan of yours since I took your class, History and Philosophy of Design, at Stanford 25-ish years ago. What grade did I give you? I got an A, actually. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, we'll see how this goes. I may need to reconsider. It was an A-, <laughs> maybe it an A-, actually. Revisionist history. But it's so wonderful to have you here. We're doing this as a part of our special series on the history of design. So what better person to have than somebody who is extremely knowledgeable about that? Not only taught it at Stanford, still teaches it, but has written an entire book about it called Make It New, The History of Silicon Valley Design. Let's just start with history of design and why it's important. Why is understanding the history of design important to those of us who are designers today? Well, that's really the obvious question, and there's not really an obvious answer. It's an interesting one. The initial thought that I think many people would have is that our technology environment is evolving so fast that all of our attention should be focused on the future. My own feeling is that if we step back from where we are, we will have a context and a perspective that will clarify the route in front of us. That's what I've been trying to accomplish in the books that you mentioned and the teaching that I've done at Stanford and California College of the Arts. It's to encourage people, encourage students, encourage people in professional practice to step back from the intensity of the moment and gain a larger perspective. In doing so, you will find all kinds of interesting things, one of which is simply the fact that much of what you were doing that feels so completely new, unprecedented, and state-of-the-art actually has precedence and has some instructive lessons about what has happened that has gone right and what has happened that has gone wrong, and that may, as I say, give us some kind of guidance as we move forward. 
It's fascinating, you know, the history of Silicon Valley, it's not a long history in the grand scheme of thinking about where humans have been, but it's a really important history that wants to be told. It was interesting in your book to hear the story about when design became important in the consideration of technology and how technology was created. Could you just introduce us to that moment of like what was happening, what time in history and what was happening? Where were the big players at the time? Some years ago, maybe a decade ago or so, one of my friends, his name is Gerard Ferbershaw. He's one of the founders of what was then Lunar Design and is now McKinsey Design because everybody has been bought. Gerard gave me a page out of what you guys will probably recognize, but some of your younger audience members won't, a page out of the Palo Alto Yellow Pages. <laughs> You're both nodding, but I should explain that the Yellow Pages, it's a business directory for telephone users. A telephone is this thing that used to sit on your desk. It was a page from the 1979 Yellow Pages in which it listed every design consultancy in Northern California. And there were, if I remember correctly, nine of them. And they were squeezed between detective agencies and diaper services. <laughs> uh, so that was 1979. One of them, by the way, was called Hovey Kelly Design. And we may get back to that. Most of the rest of them uh, you've never heard of. They did restaurant menus and they did some engineering-based consulting. I found this particularly fascinating because when I, I looked at this page, perhaps 30 years after it was created, I was musing that the Bay Area is one of the, if not the global epicenters of design. So the question that I had was, how did we move from complete obscurity to being one of the world's centers of design? It's at least arguable that there's a greater concentration of design professionals in the Bay Area than anywhere else in the world. That's a numbers question that we could play with if we wanted to. So I became fascinated by this question. If you had asked almost anybody in, let's just pick a date, 1980, around the time of the telephone advertisements, and asked what are the world centers of design, I think there would have been a pretty easy consensus. It would have been Milan for furniture, Paris for fashion, Tokyo for electronics, London for product and perhaps education, Los Angeles for whatever they do there, New York for graphics, and the Bay Area would simply not have been on anybody's map. So this is a pretty remarkable thing, movement from obscurity to centrality in the space of about 30 years. So I wanted to see how that happened and gain a better understanding of it and a better explanation of it. My assumption when I went into it is that the story began when, anecdotally, Steve Jobs marches into a small studio above a dress shop, above Roxy's dress shop in downtown Palo Alto, which was populated by six recent graduates of the Stanford Design Program, and asked them if they could design a mouse. And the rest is history. And that's a pretty well-known story now. But when I scratched a little bit, I discovered that there was some design activity prior to that in the 1970s. So I scratched a little bit further, and I found a bit more in the 1960s. And I kept scratching until I got to, I don't remember the exact date, but around December 1951, I think, that the first design professional was hired by Hewlett-Packard in Palo Alto. So it turned out that the Apple 
piece of the story, which is of monumental significance, was not the beginning. It was the pivot at almost exactly midpoint that began the professionalization of design. So up to that point, most design activity was located within small studios within tech companies like Hewlett-Packard and Ampex, which is now a distant memory. But what begins to happen in the 1980s is technologies begin to move from business to business applications, computers being used by insurance companies, banks, airlines, the military, into the consumer market. And, you know, obviously the Macintosh computer is the symbolic example of that. And the significance of that for our story, to put it a little bit bluntly, if you're using a mainframe in the back room of a large organization, honestly, you do not care much about design. You care about the performance, the technical performance. You are a technical professional and so on and so forth. When you start putting computers on the desktops of white-collar workers everywhere and then into the backpacks of middle school students, when you start carrying them in your purse or wearing them on your wrist, your tolerance for a bad experience diminishes and then vanishes. And design was called upon in its early years and increasingly up to the present to craft that experience. That's so interesting. And it still rings true today. I mean, Eli and I have spent a lot of time with and in various companies. And where there's B2B software, those teams report more challenges. You know, the design teams are like, people don't understand us. We're downstream. They think of us as like, we make things pretty. The B2C, like the consumer-facing products, they are there earlier on. In the conceptualization of a product, they partner closely with engineers or more peers. It's amazing to see like this is a truth that is embedded in history. There's no doubt in my mind that design has risen in prominence and importance and in acceptance dramatically in, I would say, probably the last 20 years. But it's not there yet. It's still a kind of a fragile presence in many companies design groups. We've seen in this catastrophic wave of layoffs in Silicon Valley since the beginning of this year, 2023. We've seen that design groups are often the most vulnerable and the first to go, even at companies that have celebrated the importance of design in their operations. And I still hear plenty of laments from my former students who are now working at tech companies in the Valley, but across the U.S. and in fact around the world, that they feel misunderstood, disrespected, their influence is limited. And what you said about making it pretty, I actually still occasionally hear that. I chuckle a little bit because it's a very obsolete kind of understanding of what designers actually do. But yes, I do indeed still hear that. Barry, kind of to that point and to this idea of this sort of wall between engineering and design, it seems like, you know, through the examples given in your book and ones we all know, the more effective companies, there's almost this blurring of lines between the engineering design teams. There's a lot of co-ownership. There's lack of territorialism. There's understanding. Maybe talk about that a little bit for us. Sure. One of the things that has been really striking, I do write about it, but the book is now some years old and I almost want to revisit it and craft some of those stories over again. The role of the designer has begun to shift in some companies very, very dramatically. And 
it is not coincidental, I think, that this applies to some of the most successful companies in the world, Apple being one of them, the most profitable company in the world. But here's an example from Tesla of what I'm talking about when I refer to the changing role of designer. One of my conversations was with the chief designer at Tesla. His name is Franz von Holzhausen, and he is actually an American, comes out of Art Center's Transpo program, as German as his name sounds. And I asked him precisely the question that you just asked me, what is different about being a designer at Tesla, which whatever you think about Tesla, whatever you think about Musk, I don't have any hesitation in saying that they've made the most important innovation in automotive history in a century. And I'll defend that statement. So I asked him, von Holzhausen, their chief designer, what is different about your role at Tesla from your previous jobs? He previously worked for Mazda. He actually designed my Miata, which I love. And then if I got the sequence correct from my memory, he went on to Chrysler, where he was a design lead. And what he told me was really striking. At Chrysler, and in the automotive industry generally, the designer is effectively a link in a chain. So I'll go back to that kind of cliche about R&D develops a process. They hand it over to engineering to build it. They hand it over to design to wrap it up in a nice box. Who hands it over to marketing, which figures out how to sell it? Okay, I know that that's a cliche, but we'll stick with it for a moment. A link in a chain is obviously very important. A chain doesn't work if one link is broken. So that does not minimize the role of design. But what he told me was that at Tesla, it's not so much a link in a chain as the hub of a wheel. So his job is to sit at the same table with the head of aeronautical engineering who's working on airflow over the hood, electrical engineering, which is responsible for the Panasonic battery pack, mechanical engineering, the drivetrain, software engineering, the display, and marketing, of course. And his role as designer is not to figure out the upholstery. It's to coordinate all of the other elements that have to be coordinated in order to produce a coherent product at the end of the day. And I thought this was really fascinating. The role of the designer has shifted from stylist to coordinator. And I think the same general point could be made about some of the most progressive companies in the world that consider themselves to be design-led. It's not that they take styling more important than they used to. It's that the role of the designer has fundamentally changed. I wonder if we can unpack this more because one thing that a lot of companies struggle with is the idea of innovation. And design is often, as we said, it's seen as like it could influence things like customer satisfaction. It could influence marketing perceptions and so forth. This is a desirable product. I want to buy it. None of that's really innovation, but design can and historically has played a really important role in innovation. What have you seen in history that gives us examples of how that works? One of the episodes in the history of design that I I tended to spend a lot of time with in the course that Elijah had the um, misfortune to take at Stanford many years ago (laughs) had to do with the emergence of the industrial design profession in the U.S. really in the 1930s. And I will preface this just by saying that human beings have been making things for millennia. But the profession of design is actually very new. The specific attitude toward making things 
that we call design is barely 100 years old. In the 1930s, we saw the emergence of the kind of impresarios of design, names like Raymond Lowy and Henry Dreyfus and Walter Dorwin Teague, Norman Belgetti's. They were impresarios. They tended to be very dramatic and flamboyant in their personalities. They were selling a vision. They were selling a concept that somehow art added to engineering could enhance consumer demand and such. And they were mostly very, very successful, and they became quite wealthy pursuing what they were doing. But here's what I wanted to say in response to your question. They often reached, what's that nice phrase, punched beyond their weight. They reached far into the future in kind of crafting a vision of you know, what it might look like if we could fly on an airplane with only wings and no fuselage, or <laughs> if we could communicate instantaneously around the world. And many of these ideas that are, you know, laid out in books like Belgetti's Horizons or Teague's Design This Day, there are a bunch of them and they're fun to read in retrospect. But many of those visions were completely unrealistic at the time and in some cases remain completely unrealistic 80 years later. But what they did was they stimulated thought within, I'll say, the corporate community and the consumer community about what we might do that we are not now doing. And at their best, this went way beyond simply introducing a new product or an improved version of an old product, but helped to set a roadmap or where we might go. And I refer back to this story because there is today a whole movement within design education in particular, which goes under various names, speculative design, critical design, design futures. And it has to do with reaching beyond where we are now and helping to craft a vision for where we might go. And I have personally always felt that that is a critical role for design. It does not pay very well because there's no immediate kind of consumer payoff. It doesn't turn into, you know, the next toaster that's going to be on the shelves at Walmart or the next Barbie that will be on the shelves before Christmas. But in the larger sense, I think it is actually somewhere between an opportunity and a responsibility for designers to do exactly that. I think that's really interesting. We're hopefully going to have on Paul Sappho. You may know. Oh, sure. I know Paul. He's a futurist. Uh, mm -hmm. He often comes to our class to give a guest lecture. And he has this interesting concept of kind of what you're talking about, these visionaries who have these ideas that we can't even execute right now. And he has this concept of diffusion where there's this sort of long tail where eventually it gets, you know, there's entrepreneurs who take it on and then it gets more widely adopted. And that kind of cycle seems really interesting. Does that kind of align with what you're getting at here with these engineers? Yeah, very much. And Paul, I'm going to leave it to him to tell you his stories, which are wonderful. But we can look back in the history of product development and see lots of failures. We need to reevaluate what we mean by failure. It can be conceived as an experiment. And I can tell you a little story. I had an interview with Steve Jobs. Many years ago, there was a design magazine called ID Magazine, which you guys probably remember, but it's unfortunately defunct. But it was as close to the kind of main official, unofficial magazine of the design profession. And they asked me to do an interview with Jobs. They had been angling for an interview with him for a long time. He finally agreed. 
And he said under the condition that his chief designer, Johnny Ive, joined the discussion. So, well, gee, two for the price of one. Yeah, I, I guess we'll agree. <laughs> I guess that's okay. I'll think about it. And they asked me to do that interview. And I will tell you, I was relatively early in my career on this stuff and frankly, rather nervous. Steve has had quite a reputation as being somewhat ornery. And I even remember asking my buddy, David Kelly, who is his good friend, do you have any advice as I go into this? And David said, yes, if he's in a bad mood, just leave. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't bother. Don't waste your time. But he was actually in a rather good mood until, and that's Jobs, not David, who's always in a good mood. Things were going well until I asked him at an early point in the discussion, what explains Apple's unbroken record of success? And he looked at me like I was crazy in the kind of Steve Jobs glare that can go straight through your head and come out the other end. And his point was, if anybody tells you that we or anybody else has an unbroken record of success, they are either misinformed, lying, or stupid. You achieve success through a series of what may look like errors, blunders, the Apple Newton, you know, which nobody remembers, but it laid the groundwork for, you know, the almost universal acceptance of now the iPad and, you know, various interactive products and on and on and on. So I think the point there that I wanted to make is that things that may look like blunders, failures, market catastrophes, they can be thought of as prototypes. And if there is one weapon in the arsenal of the designers that nobody else really has, but the designers are trained to master, it's the building of prototypes. And you build a prototype not because it's supposed to work, but in a sense because it's not supposed to work. It's supposed to be a learning artifact that gets better and better and less and less flawed and less and less ungainly as you move forward. But you're learning from failure. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. And now, back to the show. Research and ethnography are various research modalities, tools, are one way that we can de-risk those prototypes and maybe go into it with some context and understanding about behaviors and needs of people. And I was fascinated in your book to hear this entry point where it really did not exist for quite some time. And then there were anthropologists and folks who came in and brought these methods from other disciplines into software and product design. Could you regale us with the tale of how that came together? <laughs> yeah, it's not just a tale, it's a process. Sure, and sure. The kind of larger context of that process, I think, is the expansion of the perimeter around what we call design. So design, you know, in the 30s, it was very much about styling. And then there was the addition of serious engineering to design teams. In, I would say, probably the 1980s, and even the latter part of the 1980s, we began to see the expansion of that perimeter one more time to include the human and the behavioral sciences. You may be familiar with the work of James Fulton Suri, who brought an ethnographic approach to IDEO's work. And at a certain point, and it is around 1990, I would say, IDEO began to guarantee that all of its products 
would go through a rigorous human factors analysis before they went out the door to the client. And that was largely Jane's doing. And I can tell you just a little bit of anecdote. I asked her where all of this came from. She has a background in architecture and psychology. And she had been working in the UK kind of as a consultant. And if Jane is listening, I hope I'm not garbling any of the details, but my intentions are honorable. She would be called in to evaluate the reasons for an industrial accident. So some you know, machinist gets his hand mangled in a machine and part of her responsibility would be to figure out the damages. And she increasingly began to think, you know, you guys are bringing me in at the wrong stage. So rather than evaluating the damages afterwards, why don't we look at the machine beforehand and think about what is it about this machine that could have been reconsidered, redesigned to make that accident less likely in the first place? And I know a little bit about this because I'm completely incompetent in machines. And I had a number of experiences in the Stanford machine shop of a very, very astute shop TA catching me before I pressed the green button rather than the red button on a milling machine, which would have cost me most of my fingers. In any case, with this insight, Jane and increasingly a growing number of other people began to bring what we would call human factors research, ergonomic research, and ultimately behavioral and even anthropological ethnographic research into design practice, not as a kind of a nice add-on or an interesting sideline for academics like me, but an essential part of design practice. One of the biggest regrets that I have about my book, or one of the things that I would like to revisit at some point, is that almost all of the key ethnographic researchers that began to enter design practice in this decade of the 1990s were female. So I'm frequently asked why there aren't more women in this story. And you know the obvious answer is there simply were not that many women in the engineering-based fields. And it's you know regrettable but predictable that there was an imbalance there. It is not a void, but I would say an imbalance is the correct word. But as more women began to enter what is often erroneously and patronizingly called the soft skills, you begin to see a really significant gender balance shifting within the design profession. And I think that that holds still today. On this topic, certainly there's these more recent unsung heroes in design, but I'm wondering if we could rewind a little bit. Lisa Demetrios will be part of this series. She's the granddaughter of Charles and Ray Eames. And a few years ago, you gave a really nice lecture about the history of women in design and it had a story about Charles and Ray Eames in particular. Could you kind of summarize or talk about that story? A little bit? Oh, yeah. Well, I do know Lisa. And in fact, you may be interested to know that together with a colleague at CCA, California College of the Arts, she is Sandrine LeBas, we conceived the idea of running a studio slash seminar class for industrial design students on the Eames legacy. And what better place to hold this seminar than the Eames Ranch in Petaluma? So we trucked about a dozen of our undergraduate ID students up to Petaluma every other week, and they had an opportunity to immerse themselves in, I almost want to call it the flotsam and jetsam of the Eames studio, most of which has been preserved. It was about to be torn down and disposed of, and 
Lisa and her brother and various allies were able to rescue this legacy, and most of it is now being stored there. So, you know, it's one thing to see an Eames chair, or more commonly a replica of an Eames chair, or maybe a reissue of an Eames chair at Design Within Reach, or, you know, perhaps if you're lucky on eBay. And it's another thing to walk into a storeroom where you see 40 or 50 versions of that chair beginning to take shape. That was quite an experience. And the assignment that we gave our students was not to design something in the style of Ray and Charles Eames. That would be, I think, actually relatively easy and not that interesting as an educational experience, but to enter into the thought process of the Eames studio and design something that accorded with the objectives, the intuitions, the ideas, and the ideals of the studio and see what they could come up with. I think that the story you might be referring to, Charles was given an award by one of the leading British design organizations. It was a Lifetime Achievement Award. And designers love to give each other awards. I mean, my God, I've been to so many award ceremonies and had so many free cocktails from Absolute Vodka and Ghirardelli Jack. <laughs> can't begin to tell you. So Charles receives the gold medal. And then Ray Eames, and Ray, of course, was his wife, not his brother, was called up to the stage and presented with a red rose. And this kind of emblematic of, I don't think there's a more generous word than outright sexism that was wired into the profession throughout its early years. There are prominent women throughout the history of design. And I've done a decent, if somewhat half-assed job of trying to excavate some of those stories. And now there is a, a significant body of scholarship mostly being conducted by female and feminist scholars into the place of women in the history of the various design disciplines. There are plenty in furniture and in ID. There are fascinating stories about a small group of graduates of the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn who were scooped up en masse, all nine of them, I think, by a legendary guy named Harley Earle, who is the chief of the design section, color and style, of General Motors. And he had the insight that although men pay for cars, this is the 1950s, okay, although men pay for the family car, it's more typically the housewife who chooses which one to buy. And so Earl brought these young women into the design section at General Motors. They were rather condescendingly referred to as the damsels of design. And much of the work that they did may seem to a casual viewer as not that important. It had to do with upholstery and it had to do with amenities and it had to do with, you know, having a place for your makeup kit in the glove compartment and your matched luggage in the trunk. But if you step back from that and think about what's actually going on, a passenger or even a driver in a car does not really experience internal combustion. You experience the immediate environment that you're in, the human environment. And these women were being asked to direct their attention toward the human environment, the point of interaction, or as we might say, interface with the automobile. And then Earl retired and a new manager stepped in and promptly fired all of them, putting an end to that 
really interesting episode carrying that forward. We have a growing preponderance of female designers in fields such as interaction design, UX design, interface design, web design, the less engineering intensive, uh, by engineering, I'm talking about the sort of mechanical side of things, where women have always had a somewhat inhospitable reception. But as more and more design work is software driven or about software, we are seeing growing numbers of women in design. And people such as my colleague at CCA, Erin Malone, now working on a book for MIT Press on women in interaction design in particular. So there's going to be a big wave of excavation of the complex gender issues in design, and I welcome that. I love that you're speaking to that, because that's one thing that it came across to me reading the book was definitely there's like a boys, white boys club to this. And I know like you're a historian, you're reporting, like here's who was there. And I love that you're doing the work to find everyone who was there. Are there underrepresented groups beyond the female stories, but underrepresented groups of people of color, gender identities and so forth that listeners should be aware of? Sure. There are plenty of stories. It's going to take a certain amount of hard work to excavate them. The Profession has been overwhelmingly white and male and European or American. And we can dispute that if we like, but I don't see any obvious way around that kind of demographic statistical fact. The big challenge that many of us in the field, and I'm talking about the design history field, is not simply to find you know, some guy who had a Native American lineage or a Black American or a gay designer and bring that person to prominence and start to tell those stories. That's, I think, critically important. And I want to give every encouragement to my students, my colleagues, and other people who are doing that kind of work. I think the more interesting thing is to rethink and reconceptualize how we tell that story. So 25 years ago, Eli took a course at Stanford called the History and Philosophy of Design. And that course, I am now embarrassed to say it, in its origins, it exemplified what I might call the Plato to NATO <laughs> approach, which is a strictly European story. So design migrates from William Morris and the English arts and crafts movement at the end of the 19th century to these industrial designers in New York and Los Angeles in the 1930s, and then to the Silicon Valley consultancies with a lot of detours along the way. And more than simply finding examples of people who didn't fit that mold, but were still part of that trajectory, what a lot of design historians are now trying to do is reconceptualize the story itself. And that is to think about what we really mean when we are talking about design and design history. So I said earlier that design is a relatively young profession, maybe a hundred years old. Maybe that needs to be rethought. So, you know, if somebody is working on what we might call handicraft or ethnic arts, as if white people are not an ethnicity themselves, is it, in fact, correct to say that that is not yet design, but that is art or applied art or decorative art or ethnic art or something like that? So some of the more 
interesting for me, but also esoteric for many design professionals. Research that is going on around the world has to do with reconceptualizing that story itself. And that is a slightly different, actually a substantially different research undertaking than simply identifying underrepresented individuals who are associated with underrepresented groups. If you put that lens on it, you might also think of our entire human history in which we all essentially came from one continent in Africa and our very earliest you know, tool-making capabilities. That was design, arguably. Some of those objects are very beautiful, actually, and functional. So I think there is an interesting way to tell that story. Sure. And as I say, it entails a rethinking of the narrative itself. Some years ago, I was on a panel and we were talking about wearables. So everybody was excited about wearables. The first smart watches were at the time of this conference, just on the horizon. And there were products that had the form factor of a wedding ring. And I don't know if you know this product that was done at IDEO, the two clients being Levi Strauss and Google, an interesting pair of clients for a wearable denim jacket with conductive fabric in it and a device that would allow a bicycle messenger to keep both hands on the handlebar while having a communicator on the sleeve. So we were going on and on about these high-tech wearables and how exciting this future was. And one of my colleagues from the CCA fashion design program, Linda Gross, said, wait a minute, guys, we invented wearables. People have been wearing clothes for 30,000 years, <laughs> and there is no coincidence in the fact that our word technology and our word textile, tech-tech, are etymologically basically the same word. And going back to your previous question, textiles from the Neolithic era through the Bauhaus and into the present have been overwhelmingly women's work. Look at almost any fashion design program in the United States, and that's where you're going to see the gender balance tip in the direction of females. There was a moment in the book where I was listening to the audiobook. I love to learn through my ears. But it was a moment where I had to pause, and it just sort of felt like, it sounds a little cheesy, but it felt like a sacred moment, which was the origin of interaction design, where the term became clear. There was debate over what this discipline was, what went into it, and what it would be called. Could you lay that out for us? Because I think everybody listening is involved one way or another with interaction design. And yet, I would wager almost nobody really knows the origins of that phrase. Yeah. Not only do most people not know the origins of the phrase, <laughs> very few people can actually define what it actually means. So there is an origin story, and it can be traced to a pretty specific moment in time. And it has to do with our uh, late great colleague, Bill Mogridge, who died several years ago. It's probably 10 years ago already. So Mogridge, if people are not familiar with this extremely important figure in our history, was running a consultancy in the UK, in London, called Mogridge Design. And Bill had a nose for where the action was. And he began to see that as Britain was shifting from a manufacturing to a service economy, his future as basically an industrial design studio was uncertain. And he began to sniff around for where the most promising 
areas of future activity would be. Making a long story short, he ended up looking at the Boston-Cambridge area and the San Francisco Bay area, opted for the second, and ultimately created a studio. His first studio was in London, so he created ID2, as it was named, in San Francisco. One of the first projects that he got was sponsored by a guy named John Ellenby, who also unfortunately died recently. I feel very, very fortunate to have grabbed elements of the story while many of the figures were still available and willing to talk. But Ellenby had been one of the key scientists at Xerox Park, the Palo Alto Research Center, which, as most people I think now know, essentially invented desktop computing in about three years from 1972 to 75 or 76. And then in one of the worst business decisions in the history of business, Xerox corporate management determined that there was no future in desktop computing. It is a more complicated story than that, but there's a good literature on it. So L&B and a number of the other key researchers essentially stormed out of Xerox. And one of them went up to Redmond, Charles Simone, and launched what is now Microsoft Office. And another two of them who had created a graphics program at Xerox left and created what we know as Adobe and on and on. More billionaires came out of Xerox Park than out of Wall Street, I think. In any case, John Ellenby was one of the key researchers. He left in a huff and created his own company called Grid Systems. And their idea was to create a laptop-sized computer, a computer in the, with a form factor of something in which the screen would fold down over the keyboard and it could all, be carried almost as a portfolio. He had been trying to sell this idea to an administrator in the executive office of the Carter White House. And he said, I can build you a computer that will fit on your desktop. And the guy in the White House said, interesting, but not for us. The president does not pay me to sit at my desk. He pays me to go out into the field and solve problems wherever they are. So if you can build me a computer that will fit in my briefcase, then come back and talk. And LNB responded, I can do better than that. I can build you a computer that will fit in half your briefcase, and the other half you can have your lunch in the Wall Street Journal. So he went back to San Francisco and began to work on a computer that would be small enough to fit into half of an official Xerox executive issued beat up leather briefcase. He assembled a team of very gifted engineers and needed a designer to create the form factor and the mechanical interface part of it and fell to his fellow Brit, Bill Moggridge. So finally looping back to the Moggridge story. It's a rather detailed story, involves my good friend Mike Nuttall, who was a young designer with Moggridge's group. But ultimately, the upshot of it is that having completed the design of this completely unprecedented product, Moggridge found himself less interested in the physical machine that he had helped to design than in we could think of it as what's going on beneath the keyboard and behind the screen. In other words, the nature of the interaction, not what it was, but what it could do. And he saw this with the prescience that Moggridge had. He saw this as the future, not just of technology and computers, but of design itself. So he decided that he needed somebody 
on his staff in his studio who had the kind of traditional skills of a print graphic designer and the technical skills of a computer programmer. But he didn't have the budget to hire two people, so he took a risk and decided to try to find somebody who combined both of those skills, the visual and the technical, and experimented with various ways of phrasing it in an advertisement, in a job announcement. He tried soft face design. He tried interface design. He tried dialogue design, I think was another one. And each of them had some kind of a problem. And he finally came across the term interaction design. So in announcing a job position in this unknown and literally unprecedented field of interaction design, he more or less accidentally coined a term. And many years later, I invited Bill to speak to the graduating class at the commencement ceremonies of CCA, of California College of the Arts. And I was able to introduce him to people receiving an undergraduate and graduate degree in interaction design, a field that he had named 20 or 30 years earlier. Barry, this has been wonderful. We might have to do a part two at some point because there's so much territory to cover. But as we wrap up here, where can folks find your book? What's the best place to go? Well, it's in some bookstores. It's certainly on Amazon. It's available through the MIT Press. It's an MIT book. I hope it is an accessible and I hope it is an engaging read, but it's not a picture book particularly. It's not a book about the products designed in Silicon Valley. It's fundamentally about the role of design in the formation of Silicon Valley and of the formation of a design profession here, which I think is really hugely important. Well, Barry, thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to have you. Thanks for all that you do. Thanks for teaching us as youngster designers and continuing to do so today. Thank you very much. It was great having Barry on. You know, I've seen him a bit in the interim, but my strongest memories are from taking his class back in the late 90s. And it was the first design class I took that wasn't really focused on a project-based class where you're actually going through the design process and making things or a studio class, which is maybe a little more kind of art-oriented, but you're actually learning the history and writing about the history. And I didn't know if I was going to like that at first, but it turned out I found it really fascinating and just the way that he was able to make the subjects come to life. He's obviously got a great sense of humor. So that was a really powerful part of it too. Yeah, I think it's such an important topic for all of us, listeners and and you and me included, being in the software industry for a number of years. There's so much that I didn't know that was part of the narrative kind of built into the history of Silicon Valley. One in particular was just how, you know, B2B products versus B2C products the difference of perception of design's role in that process. You know, business to business products, the general feeling is like, it just needs to be functional, do the basic things. I don't need design to float to the top. And with business to consumer things, and in the book, he talks about the pocket calculator being one of the first big moments with Hewlett Packard. 
that it's a consumer product. It's not just, you know, for scientists, mathematicians, and so forth. This is like for everybody. This is a product that sold way faster than any of the scientific stuff that they'd been making. And it needed to work well for everybody. I found that interesting because there are echoes of that truth today. You and I have visited lots of companies, talked to lots of design leaders, and the places where design struggles the most is where there's a B2B business model. Those teams struggle to really be understood, to be valued, to be part of the conversation with their uh, colleagues in engineering and product. You know, I think it's part of that evolution. And when you're thinking back to that era of the sort of maybe late 50s, early 60s, you have a picture in your mind, maybe a black and white photograph of some guys standing around a giant mainframe with pocket protectors. And clearly they were making these products, these very technical products for people like themselves. And the whole idea of actually going out and understanding like different people, different consumers wasn't, you know, even on their radar. And so it was interesting to hear about too, the origin story of research and ethnography and pulling in these kind of techniques from anthropology really allowed some of these early designers to like think outside themselves as the only end user of the products they were building. And how fascinating to hear him explain the backstory of where that phrase interaction design came from. That was not something I'd ever heard before. It's like some things you sort of take for granted. Like this is what people call it. They call it interaction design, this thing that we're doing. And there was a specific moment when that was conjured. Yeah, it's neat too that, you know, Bill Moggridge is being credited with that. You know, he comes from more of a physical product world, but what he saw as, as really the future was not the object itself, the device, but what was going to be happening on the screen there. And it was going to become very much a key part of the experience. I also really liked that Barry spoke directly to the fact that, you know, when you read a history of Silicon Valley, it's hard not to notice that it reads as a white boys club, that women, people of color, underrepresented groups were not included for quite some time. But there are stories, and there are really important stories that are there. And I think there's opportunities to pull that forward more. And certainly today, what I see as I you know work with different companies is I see a lot of different types of people. It's not just a white boys club anymore, playing really important roles, founding companies, leading large teams, you know, driving innovation. You're a father of a daughter, and I'm a father of two African-American boys. And so even though you and I, we present as kind of the typical white boys group, we have these personal connections that we want to see a more diverse perspective in this industry that we love so much. You know, it goes further back even than Silicon Valley history, but the story that, which I'd heard him tell before about Ray and Charles Eames and how Charles was presented with this, you know, very formal award and Ray got a red rose, you know, in the same ceremony essentially speaks a lot to the very overt sexism that was going on at the time. And it was also cool to hear him talk about how, essentially that changed, you know, in part with this introduction of this concept of research and ethnography and a lot of women came into the field then, then that's only grown in influence over time. So yeah, I think finding those kinds of stories and highlighting them is, is an important task. Yeah. Ray and Charles Eames, that one in particular is just really tough to stomach because she was, I mean, they were partners in design and he was seen as kind of 
doing the work and she was supporting behind the scenes. That's just not the case. Another topic that was fun to dive down with him into was this kind of blurring lines between engineering and design where companies are doing really, you know, interesting things. And, and even historically is when there's not such a silo between, you know, those two facets of the company where they're really working together, they're collaborating, there's a real cross-functional understanding. And that was clear, even historically, that that's an important trait. Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of cringe when I hear people use the phrase like it's a design-led company. Ultimately, what we want is not design-led or engineering-led or product-led. It's like all of these teams working together in very blurry ways. And that requires, one, suspension of ego and relinquishing territorial boundaries. Two, it requires some cross-functional knowledge. You need to have a solid foundation of understanding and engineering and product and just how the business operates, how the business makes money to be able to, you know, move from space to space, code switch between those different languages of how these different teams and disciplines talk and communicate. I'll tell you a little pro tip here. The people I've seen their careers really take off, they are cross-functional. They are non-territorial. They are really good at just blurring the lines between teams. There's also... And this isn't just true of designers, obviously, but a trait of having curiosity even about these other realms and just wanting to learn more and like what is important to engineers, what is important to you know these other roles in the company, understanding the language, understanding the goals. I think that's also traits of really good designers is having that intense curiosity. I enjoyed Barry's book. I thought it was super interesting, and I'm glad that it's out there. You know, reading that, and we just had Tony Fidel on the show recently, too, and his book, Build, also gives a bit of a history of Silicon Valley because his career spans, you know, north of two decades. But Barry goes all the way back to the 1950s and pulls it all the way forward. So those two are, are great reads if you're going to be on the beach this summer, vacationing somewhere. These are interesting histories that can kind of fill in the gaps and help you understand your craft and your discipline a little bit more. Just to tie into some prior guests, too, that, that have been mentioned in those books, Robert Brunner, which will be an upcoming episode, or actually already aired by the time we, we have this, I believe. John Maida, we've had on the show before, and he'll be on again to talk about his AI. And he wrote the foreword for the book. Yeah, that's right. And then Dave Kelly, obviously, we've had on the show too. So in some ways, it's kind of a small world, this kind of in, this intersection in between design and Silicon Valley. But there's definitely a number of figures that have been very influential and we've been lucky enough to, to have on to talk to us and our audience. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of other episodes to dig into if you want to go deeper on this history. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. 
This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.